Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I'm so excited to have my buddy, Bruce Robert Kaufman, Coffin, here to talk about his book, Within Plain Sight. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's a oh, pleasure so to be we- here. Oh, thank you so much. I, I, as I was telling you earlier, I'm not sure whether I devoured your book or it devoured me, but it was <laughs> a page turner that I simply couldn't put down. What a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Always nice to hear that. That's, that's <laughs> what we all struggle to do is keep you up at night. <laughs> well, you did because I was I'm I'm a curious person. I'm like a cat. So I'm curious at exactly what's going to happen. And I started, as I told you earlier, I, I said, well, I'll read a chapter and then I'll come back to it and then I'll read a chapter. And then it was OK, it's midnight and I really have to go to bed because I have a day job. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love to hear that. Do you find that? um does your main character, John Byron, does he mirror part of what you did in your life as a, a sergeant detective with the Portland Maine Police Department? He does. Uh, I mean, obviously, my job wasn't anywhere near that exciting. Um, by I mean, you know, the, the, my my job wasn't a page turner, if you will. Um, <laughs> it, it had moments of uh, sheer terror, and uh, but most of the time it was boredom. So, yeah, I did that job for uh, Detective Sergeant for, uh, well, I retired from the police department uh, after completing the first year, first week of my 28th year on the job. So I did it quite a while. It it is one of those things that one of the things that I noted is that I do accounting for my day job and Mm -hmm. I have to make lists because if I don't, I won't. I won't remember where I am, but one of the things that I noticed was the amount of detail. And I don't want to trivialize that or make it sound as if I'm just pointing something out. But I mean, it must be a completely detail-oriented job that that just never ends on the details. Is that right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, the, your whole job really leading up to becoming a, a homicide detective is is preparing for that. Um, every little thing matters. And in the court of law, you have no idea what evidence specifically will get in and what evidence won't be allowed in. It's not, it, you know, I don't know what people think when they watch television shows or read bad fiction, um, but it's not just because the evidence was improperly gathered that it doesn't make it into the courtroom. Sometimes it's just because they, they find that it would be too prejudicial for the jury. I mean, if, if the killer's wearing a I Love Satan shirt, it's probably not something that they're going to show in a photograph to the jury. Um, because of the possibility of them being prejudiced by that. So it's it's really about gathering every single piece you can and making sure that um, you've built a case that can survive that. So that's that. And, you know, you're only really getting a small piece of that in the book. My, in 400 pages, I, I can't bore the reader to death. It would be a much longer novel if I did it exactly <laughs> the way we do it. But uh, But, yeah, it's a pretty good glimpse into how it works, yeah. It's it is one of those things that at probably about halfway through, I kept thinking to myself, at what point do you get sleep? And I do know that seriously in a job that timing is so important 
because you can't just, it can't be six months. I'll get to it when I get to it. I mean, you're looking for a killer. And so that becomes obviously a race against time. Um, how, um, so Robert, John Byron in this, he is so methodical and he's so caring. That's one of the things that I noticed. I mean, he cares about his job. It's right. what he does, but he also cares about his team. And it's so obvious in how he deals with the other people on his team. Um, how important is a team in real life and as in fiction life as well? Uh, I mean, they're, I think they're equally important. You know, you realize that although you may be compartmentalizing the stress and all that other stuff that goes along with trying to investigate a case and know that there are people out there actively trying to thwart what you're doing. Uh, including uh, the bad guy in the case of, you know, wh whatever the case happens to be, or the bad lady, whatever case it is. But um, you also have to recognize that as tired and as frustrated as you are as a supervisor in a case like that, your team is, is equally so. Um, and they're one step down the ladder of the hierarchical ladder. So that's a problem because um, you're really in a position where you can affect more change than they can. And uh, so it's important, I think, to remember that. And I think I tried to imbue that in John, um, that, that his team really does come first. You know, you have to hold their feet to the fire. Yes. Make, make sure they're not doing what people do, uh, but, but also to make sure that, um, that they're unencumbered from, your high, from his higher-ups or my higher-ups in real life um, to prevent them from doing the job that they're trying to do. So there's, there's always a two-world um, what I call a two-world test that takes place. And, and really, it's people, if you, if you recognize when you watch a news, news story or you read it in the paper, everybody's pushing for the arrest. They want the bad guy arrested. They want the wolf taken down from the countryside so that everyone can sleep at night. But what you don't realize in real life is that arrest means very little. What's going to matter is that you built a case that's solid enough to stand up through, through the rigors of prosecution and what the defense attorney will do. Um, and so to me, it, it was always more important to do that than it was to go out and make a quick arrest. Uh, and it, it's also another way of avoiding mistakes, which, which we've occasionally seen happen. So uh, It happens in everyone's life. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the greatest thing about life is success happens so much more than failure. I mean, right. it just simply does. And, you know, in John Byron's case, he's, he's looking for a killer or killers. Right, right. And so he's working really hard on it. And I keep seeing from his higher ups, you know, close case, close case. Where are we? Where are we? Trust me, I can tell you, you will not stand over my shoulder and ask me where we are, because at this point in life, I'm like, you need to back away. <laughs> <laughs> and I see that so much with John Byron, because, you know, he gets it from both sides. You know, right. everybody wants it done. Everybody wants it you know, in a neat little package and move on. And right. it's like, it doesn't always happen that way because I would assume the more times that you hurry and get it wrong, the harder it is in the long run. Is that right? right. It, yeah. And you can only get it wrong once. I mean, that, that's the reality. There's no do-overs. Um, you know, people, one of the great public examples that everybody has seen is the OJ Simpson trial. And I think really depending on where you are and who you are, your opinion of that whole thing may be different than mine. But um, reality is that was really nothing more than a domestic violence case. Uh, it got built into something much bigger than that. And when you see that, you realize that if, if you believe that OJ is guilty, as I do, 
um, whether whether he's found guilty in a court of law and whether you're found innocent are two different things. There is there is guilt by court, and then there's you actually did it kind of a thing. So, <laughs> and we all know people that have gotten we've all gotten away with things. I don't know about you. Absolutely, but, everybody has in real know, life. I, I used to get I mean, a smack for the things my mother hadn't caught me doing. So, you know. <laughs> my mother but, used to smack and then ask questions. So. Right. But I mean, you can't do it again. I mean, that's a reality. No, you know, no. you've, you've kind of he's kind of gone around and even tried to write a book. You know, like what if I if I had done it or one of those things, and you can't try him again. He 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 walked. That's it. Done deal. So that's why you don't want to make those mistakes. I totally agree. And and just to belabor that just a little bit, the audacity of someone saying, "If I did," I mean, right. really, <laughs> right? I mean, he got his comeuppance eventually. Yeah. So you know, I mean, life happens. <laughs> right. It is true. Yeah. You don't. I mean. I think people are what they are. That is the one thing that that I found in a, in the job when when the frustrations would hit or somebody did get away with something like that. Uh, you had to take solace in the fact that if they were the type of person that that would do something like that once, more than likely they're going to do it again. So you Absolutely. just have to wait for it to come back around. You know, you just bide your time. Absolutely. The joke is the first time you get divorced, it's really, really difficult. Second, third, and fourth time, it becomes much easier. <laughs> it's true. It is true. <laughs> I love the fact that you've got a diverse set of characters as far as sexuality, uh, race, religion, the whole nine yards. I also assume that that is something that you ran into in your job as a detective sergeant as well. You get all kinds of people, good, bad, and indifferent. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny. I tell people that I've, I've made a lot of um, accidental good decisions in, in, the, <laughs> in writing the series. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And when I started off, I just wanted to write something that, that had echoes of real life. And mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that and, and I don't know how much of this has been uh, put out there by television or people's perceptions in general, but that there's this closed group and we're all the same, you know, we're all heterosexual and we're all white old guys or whatever it is. And that's just not a reality. I mean, I, you know, my team was very diverse, um, different religious backgrounds, uh, even uh, atheists, um, mm -hmm. some very spiritual, some not, some gay, some straight, uh, some black, some white, male, female, uh, Asian, you name it. it we, we ran the gamut. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. I think anytime your investigative body represents more closely the community that it's serving, the better uh, and more insight, uh, more insightful uh, your detectives may be because they're, they're approaching these scenarios and these, these real situations where people are hurt because somebody was killed. Um, and so you, you look at it and I think you see it with, with more of an empathetic eye than you might if you were always the outlier, if you were investigating in, into a community that you didn't recognize, if it had nothing to do with you. Um, and so really, I mean, that was my that was my team. I, you know, we had the computer geeks, we had everything. You know, you had all, all walks of life represented. And I really enjoyed working in that kind of a team environment. And it, and it really becomes a second family. I mean, it seems cliche, but, you know, the, the people that I worked with, I, I didn't care about any of our differences. You know, it wasn't like I went out and said, oh, we, you know, we've got to have differences or we got you. You just recognize that they were doing the same job you were doing. They were putting their all into it. They were putting their personal lives on hold. And we were doing something as a collective that was much greater than one of us could have done on our own. And I, and I wanted to try and portray that accurately in the book. And I hopefully I've done that.
I think so. I, I mean, I and I like the subtleness with which you simply show the reader who someone is. So there's no banging over the head. There's no look. Here's my calls right. to celeb. This right. just happens to be a person on my team. And this is what this person is like. Right. I'm a As big a reader, fan of subtlety. I'm a big fan of that. I, <laughs> well, you know, I loved that. And I have met you in person before and you have a wonderful sense of humor. And I will say that occasionally in your book, this comes out and I, you know, I either snickered or laughed out loud because I'm like, oh, okay, that's cute. <laughs> because, because when you're doing a serious job in real life, so if you ask the people that I do accounting for, they probably describe me as goofy, a clown, never serious. Accounting is boring, right. but I got to do it. And so I bring a lot of humor into that. I can imagine that you have, with a collection of personalities, somebody's going to be funny. Somebody's right. going to be a smart ass. Somebody's right. going to be dead serious at all times. Right. Because that's human nature. But I did love the humor that would come out every now and then. I'm like, oh, okay, that, <laughs> I love that. It's uh, the, the gallows humor is definitely the thing that we all survive on. Um, I'm trying to think back to, was it the original Law and Order where there was Lenny always had the good lines uh, just before the half hour break when they went to the the uh, court uh, yes. scenes, and it, there's always somebody like that. Um, sometimes in my team, it could be any one of us, depending on the day of the week and what the situation was. But it would you could tell when the team was getting really uptight and having a hard time, and there was nothing like the probably the most inappropriate comment to be made at the most inappropriate time um, to, to break that, you know, and to make everybody take a step back and kind of laugh, you know. And to sort of remember that it is life. I mean, right. honestly, when you when you have a job to do this, this serious, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, some days you really need some humor to knock yourself out of it yep. because you can't change the situation when it when you're talking about murder, it's already happened. Right. So you, it doesn't matter whether you're overly serious or overly goofy. It's already happened. And sometimes right. you sort of need to break that. I did wonder, because one of the things, and I mentioned it a little earlier, is, you know, with John, I kept noticing he would take his job home, which mm -hmm. I, it reminded me, I, you'll probably want to hit me for this, but it reminded me of a school teacher. You know, mm -hmm. I, have, I have some uh, cousin that's a school teacher and friends. I mean, they can't really get away from it. And I can imagine as a police officer and as a detective sergeant, you simply cannot get away from it because it's a mystery that you're working on. Right, right. And it, well, and it's it's funny how many parallels I have found since I started doing this to the, the other job. If you're plotting and, and writing a 400 page novel or a series of novels, um, the story never goes out of your head. You're constantly working it, whether you're sleeping, whether you're trying to fall asleep, um, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, you don't have to be at work to have that playing in the background. And I think it's important to do that uh, in real life for obvious reasons, but in, in writing from a structural standpoint, it, it has to make sense and you have to find those things that click and make it work. Um, there's just no way around that. And I think you'll find that you know, there's always the cliche of the divorced cop or, or the thrice divorced cop or the alcoholic cop. Those are cliches for a reason. They're cliches because they're, that's a very accurate portrayal of a long time detective. Um, there is no way you can constantly put your family in second place to a case uh, and drop everything you're doing at what might be the most important moment in your family's life to go work and give some other family 
hundred uh, percent. It's impossible for your own family to not resent that at some point. That really becomes stressful. And I think that's why a lot of police officers go through those things. Um, you know, we look around, Hollywood has, Hollywood has addiction with, with everything, but um, mm -hmm. unfortunately a lot of those Hollywood addictions are, are still illegal. And so police officers tend to follow on the the alcohol sword, I guess is how that works. So, but, but that's, I mean, that's just really a thing. If you, if you live a job 24 seven, at some point it begins to take a toll. And um, these aren't the kinds of things that you can, you can kind of unburden on your family. Mm -hmm. So you, you're running around keeping all this stuff bottled up inside and it, it, it's not healthy. You know, there's, there's definitely a time that you realize it's time to check out. And for me, it was 28 years, you know, the fact that you made it 28 years, uh, I commend you for that. Uh, it's, it's, that's a lot. I mean, it really, I mean, anybody who works at any job for 28 years, 30 years, it, it's a lot, but I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, I, you mentioned earlier that there are downtimes or times when it's boring, but mm -hmm. you know, if you're not healthy about trying to figure out how to deal with what you just got off of that was so intense, it must eat away at you. I mean, it, it would me anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a softy. I really wouldn't do so well as a police officer. <laughs> right. Well, you say, you never know. You say that. I mean, you have to find those healthy outlets. You know, for me, it was uh, working out, hiking, um, uh, oil painting, uh, that kind of thing, which I did on the side. Um, there, there has to be something that isn't all about police work. Yeah. I, Maine is where you live. It's also where your character lives. And it is certainly a character in your book. Uh, while I was reading it, I am a curious person. So I really did look at the, the map. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we're talking about the dump site in within plain sight, I know where the dump site is because I've looked at it on the map. I mean, right. it appears that Maine is a very beautiful place and it's a nice character in your book. Thank you. It, it is. I mean, I, I really wanted to highlight that. I toyed with the idea when I started out with this of inventing some, you know, Cabot Cove or, or whatever it was. What was it in MASH? Cranberry Cove, I think that yes. guy came yeah. from. <laughs> but but at the end of the day, I thought, you know, what a waste because I just spent, you know, three decades of my life and I knew Portland as well as I, I think you would know a lover, if that's yeah. a good uh, yeah. uh, metaphor I guess, or, or whatever. Um, I think it's, I knew the good and the bad of the entire city. I knew where all the, the high-end restaurants were that everybody wanted to go. I knew where, you know, all the tourist destinations were, but I also knew where, you know, some guy died on his roof uh, in the middle of the day and that's where we found him. You know, I knew where somebody was hung in a tree and that's where we found him. So I figured, you know, the good and the bad almost make the city a character. And it's so much of who John Byron is um, John, is, John was born and raised in Portland, Maine on Munjoy Hill, raised Irish Catholic, uh, you know, went to, went to, to the local schools. Um, he, because of that, and because of now the fact that he's now a detective sergeant in that same city, he, he is the city. I mean, the mm. city is him and he is the city. So it's not just a place to set this. I felt like it really had an impact in who he was and who his father was. So. I totally agree. So I do know that this is the fourth book uh, in the John Byron series. Is there a fifth? There is a fifth. Unfortunately, it's languishing on my shelf, uh, about two thirds finished at this point, um, tentatively titled Under the Gun. 
And um, my publisher made the decision not to put out the fifth book. So we're, I'm just going to sit on it for the time being and see where that comes back around. Uh, I am very excited. I'm currently working on a brand new series uh, for Severn River Publishing. And um, okay. Lindy Walker and I are co-authoring a, a brand new thriller adventure series, mystery series. And um, it's, uh, it's got a little bit of everything. I think if you like... Uh, if you like Indiana Jones, if you like, uh, you know, any of the Dan Brown stuff, um, I, I think this will be right up your alley. It's fast paced. Yeah. It's fun. And I feel like I'm coloring outside the lines. As we do. <laughs> so I'm really, you know, coming from police procedural world, this is really a, a fun, fresh uh, start. So I think that's a good thing. I, it'll give you a chance to grow as an author. Um, it'll give you different directions to, to go in. You know, it's right. Uh, and I'm glad that there's a, a number five. Uh, we just need to find a publisher to say right. yes. So uh, right. this was so incredibly wonderful. I, I, I have so many notes over here that I didn't even get to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I am curious. So have you been back to Becky's Diner? I have. Yes. I, I okay. try to stop by there once every couple of months. Um, Good. The, the owner is a, a special lady and uh, they, they definitely love being in that book. So that was kind of oh. cool. <laughs> Plus they've got great food. So, you know, how can I not? Precisely. I love that. Do um, one other question. Mm -hmm. uh, do the characters are most of the characters from within plain sight in the first three or is there they, a mixture? Uh, yep. No, the team, uh, Melissa Stevens, um, Mike Nugent, um, Diane Joyner, the whole team is there. Um, I, I don't think I killed anybody off. Um, <laughs> the, anytime I killed off anybody good in the series, I still get hate mail about that. So <laughs> my core group survived through the first four books. So Okay, that's good because, you right. know, I would be one of those to be sending you an email to my, we need to talk <laughs> about this. <laughs> I, it's... It, we get passionate. We readers get very passionate about our characters when we're reading. We do. Them, so. We definitely do. Oh, uh, Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. I've had such a good time. Come back anytime. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. Happy thank New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Again, the book is Within Plain Sight and is by Bruce Robert Coffin. Give me just a second. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out with Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at gooutwithdan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.